You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Rasinsinski and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing, using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rich, which I thought was a really important conversation uh, as we discussed topics like how trend followers avoid warehousing risk, how to avoid recency bias in our model design, and we even tied trend following back to a recent article by Morgan Housel about long tails and its importance in achieving exceptional performance in many industries. And I would also like to encourage you to listen to the Wednesday episode, where this week, Jim Kassan and I spoke to Darius Dale, the founder of 42 Macro. And this really was a broad-based global macro discussion where we touched on some of the most important economic forces driving the world economy right now. So if you missed any of those, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to these episodes as soon as you finish listening to Mark and I today. Mark, it's always great to be back with you after another busy week if you watch inflation trends in the US or Europe and where we are about to hear from many central banks next week. How are you uh, doing? What's going on where you are? Well, I'm good. It's uh, It's been a tremendous change in sentiment between the last time we talked and this time. And this is, I think, about a month ago, or a month and a half ago, everyone said, oh, we're going for a hard landing. We're going to be in a recession. The, the, the stagflation doom and gloomers were definitely, you know, driving markets. Now we're almost as though as we're feeling pretty good is that there might be just a soft landing. Inflation may have peaked. You know, labor markets in U.S. looked better than expected. So, in some sense, there's a there's a little bit more of a euphoria that has probably driven equity markets for the last month. And so, you know, that's it's amazing how sentiment changes so quickly. You know, uh, with with just one or two numbers that we've seen over the last month. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even within this week, I would say sentiment changed between uh, prior to Wednesday uh, and, and and after Wednesday to to some degree. So we'll we'll dig into uh, all of that. And we have got a great line of, uh, lineup of topics to discuss um, and some recent articles um, from Cliff Asnes and and so on and so forth. So it's going to be a, um, a very impactful conversation, I hope. Now, in terms of what's been going on, uh, the last week or so, as mentioned, this was a busy week on the inflation front, not least because we had German PPI out, which rose a whopping 37.2% from a year ago in July, and it increased 5.3%, smashing the 0.7% consensus estimate. And to put this in perspective, that particular data series measures the year-over-year change, and that's averaged, in fact, 2.2% if you go all the way back to 1976. And the previous kind of high 
uh, year on year was 9.8%, and that's over 44 years. Uh, so what we're seeing right now is just extraordinary. And uh, euro area uh, CPI, um, that was coming in at 8.9% in terms of uh, the annual change for July, and that was up eight, uh, from 8.6% from the prior month. So no surprise that that had a big impact in the uh, markets the last couple of days. Now, on the other side of the pond, the week started out with some short covering of trades betting on higher yields, but later in the week, sentiment changed and bonds sold off. Um, and um, that was happening as we were heading into the weekend. And of course, next week, the Kansas City Fed hosts the annual Jackson Hole meeting. So Chairman Powell will be on tape again, uh, I think August 25th. But as uh, Jim Bianco notes uh, on Twitter, it could be said that the best Fed officials to listen to are the ones that have recently left because they tell you what they really think. And along those lines, Bill Dudley uh, did not disappoint this week in his latest op-ed on Bloomberg. In it, he notes that almost everything Powell said at last year's Jackson Hole speech was wrong. But of course, that's not going to stop anyone from hanging on to every word he's going to be saying next week. Here are a few things that Dudley mentions in that article that came out uh, Friday. He writes, and, and I quote, in his 2021 address, Powell got it wrong in several important ways. He asserted that the nascent surge in inflation was likely to prove temporary, that the low unemployment rate understates the amount of labor market slack, and that we see little evidence of wage increases that might threaten excessive inflation. He endorsed the more inflation-tolerant monetary policy framework that the Fed adopted in 2020 as well-suited to address today's challenges. Anyway, next week is also packed with economic data. We get the service and manufacturing PMI, durable goods, new home sales, and the first revision to the second quarter GDP figures in the US. So um, another week, uh, another busy week, I would say, uh, as we um, kind of leave the summer period behind us. But before moving away from the economic data, I did hear this week something very interesting that Stephanie Pomboy talked about, um, and that is that corporate credit ratings have flipped from 2 to 1 in favor of upgrades in January of this year to now 2 to 1 in favor of downgrades. So maybe the rating agencies don't want to be found sleeping at the wheel like they were under the GFC, um, and also knowing that refinance rates have more than doubled since the beginning of the year. So it's definitely worth paying attention to. Now, I want to bring you in as usual again, Mark, just to hear what has caught your uh, attention um, and what you've been uh, focusing on since we last spoke about a month ago. And then we'll dig into some of the topics um, that we've uh, lined up today. Sure. Well, I started with saying that we went from this hard landing view to soft landing view. And, and I think that there was almost in a, we've gone to an extreme. And now I think we've seen this week some sobering economic data, especially out of, out of Europe. So so we may be moving back to, to the uh, hard landing uh, view after, after having a, a summer uh, euphoria. So, so I think that that's where the sentiment is coming. And, you know, I, I'd say overall, when you say, how does this catch my, uh, or what catches my attention is, is that as someone who does follow closely the macro data and then, and then try to map that on what's going on with trends in prices, 
there is a disconnect between the two, especially in the last couple of weeks. This is, is that if you follow the macro data and then you look at the price data, there has been a disconnect between the two. Uh, now, I talked about sentiment sort of flipping, but the but the core data has been fairly consistent. This is that inflation is, is, is higher in many parts of the world. It may have peaked, but it's still really high. And we could talk a little bit more about that, but you know, one of the things that I think in the U.S., especially... You know, they were touting the fact that month over month CPI was zero. So I said, let's assume if CPI was zero for the rest of the year, we still have a December number that'll come in at about 5.5% inflation. So it'll still be about 350 basis points above Fed target. That's if we'd have no inflation between now and the end of the year. So, so the perniciousness of inflation is that once it starts to rise, it does take a, lot, a long while to start to move back in the other direction because you either have it have it has to be worked through the system, or you actually have to have deflation or reversal of prices to to offset that. You know, there's so many interesting things happening right now, and I know a lot of people have been talking about. Well, we got this CPI print showing no change month to month in inflation, so that's a good thing, and inflation is going to come down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, as as it, it's almost like a conclusion, and and the Fed will stop raising rates, um, you know, soon, and and you know, over here in Europe, people are already up in arms just because we've gone from minus seventy five basis points to flat, essentially. Even that is causing a bit of a uh, a problem. But just to share something uh, locally uh, over here, that where you think about, well, I didn't see that kind of inflation coming. So in in uh, in Switzerland, where I live. We get most of the fuel and oil imported via um, the River Rhine, um, where they sail it from Holland down to uh, Basel in Switzerland. But there's now a section of the Rhine that is so low in water, it's only like 40 centimeters, about 10, 15 inches. So the uh, ships can't go down. So there's now a bit of a shortage in fuel in Switzerland. So the price at the pump, uh, which is normally more or less the same in Germany and Switzerland, and they're obviously neighbors, so you can just drive across the border if it's not. But right now, you're seeing something like a 25% difference, uh, where Switzerland is 25% more expensive for fuel just because of this unexpected thing going on in terms of water levels. So I go back to this thing, and I know I've mentioned it many times by now, but we just have to imagine the unimaginable, I think, at the moment in terms of what can happen and what can cause, you know, not just inflation, but markets essentially to move. It is really becoming a very divergent world in my in my view. I know we're going to talk more about that, but I just wanted to share that when you look at this this macro environment right now, there are still going to be things that we simply can't model for um, and it's going to surprise us in certain countries and it's going to be different from country to country. I mean, clearly, um, Germany has a problem with net gas, um, a few other countries for sure. Um, but then you have something like this happening to Switzerland where it's it's fuel. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Well, the, the important point, uh, well, you like to try to find generalization so, so we can go from the particular 
like what's happening in uh, Switzerland or what's might be happening in the United States or in Denmark. But you want to sort of say, can can we make some generalizations? And the generalization about inflation is, and the problem with inflation, is that it creates uncertainty of uh, what signals prices are giving us. So, so if you have uh, you know a twenty five percent increase in in uh, gasoline at the pump in in one country versus another what does that really tell you does that tell you that there's excess demand does it tell you that there's a shortage does it tell you anything about how long it would uh last you don't know and so because of that uncertainty it causes you as an investor or a consumer to change your behavior and you change your behavior by slowing down your decision making you say where i would make a decision based on the price i see for a given good i'll either buy it or sell it or I, I'll, I'll act on it you won't do that and so consequently you slow down your decision making and what does that do is is, is that that's going to cause trends in prices and so when we find out that you know that trend followers do better in higher inflation environment part of it is the fact that you have a general increase in prices so you can catch those trends but also it's because inflation creates uncertainty and when you create uncertainty you uh, and ambiguity you create an environment where people will slow down their decision making or they'll sort of dollar cost average in, in some of their behavior. And consequently, that in itself creates trends. And, and this is what we're trying to exploit to some degree. Sure. Well, to that point, in terms of trend following performance this week, um, uh, we certainly got a lot of tailwind toward the end of the week after we saw those German PPI numbers. I think they were really the, uh, the real reason for some uh, solid gains uh, this week. Uh, the rise in yields, in particular in Europe, um, were very um, useful for trend followers. Um, even though, by the way, uh, I had this discussion a couple of weeks ago, um, can't remember if it was with, with Alan maybe, about these articles out from Nomura and JP Morgan saying that trend followers had flipped their positions to being now long bonds. But I, I can assure you, uh, or everyone that I speak to um, are still solidly short uh, in terms of the longer term trend followers. So they should have benefited this week. We obviously had uh, soaring uh, European net gap prices and continues to go up and a stronger dollar. Um, so uh, they were the main drivers, I would imagine, from from this week's uh, performance. There were some, you know, uh, individual markets, I think, that may have uh, been beneficial as well. Something like sugar, I noticed that that um, looked like it had a good week. So uh, anyways, now it's even spilled over to my trend barometer. It's slowly digging itself out of, of the uh, of the ground. It was down at 14, which is incredibly low. I mean, really disastrous conditions at the end of July. But now we're up to 36. So that uh, momentum, positive momentum is... Um, is showing up uh, in the numbers and speaking of the numbers so as of thursday so without even um friday which i believe was a good day as well um the beta 50 is now up for the month 49 basis points up 13.33 for the year socti and ct index up now a nice 1.55 percent up 19 and a quarter for the year the trend Trend index from SOCGEN up 1.75% for the month now, up 25.5% almost uh, for the year. And the SOCGEN uh, short, short-term traders index is up a quarter percent, um, up 10.7% for the year. And um, and to compare that, the MSCI world is still up for the month, 1.5%, but down 
7.4% for the year. And the world government bond index is just uh, another down month, um, down by 1.76%, uh, down almost 9% for the year. So not uh, a lot of joy uh, in that. But as advertised at the top of the show, um, we've got some um, great talking points that we want to get through. But the first one uh, really came from an article um, that our friends over at AQR, in particular Cliff Asnes, authored and published this week. It's about trend following. It's about managed futures, as he calls it, and the reasons why you would want to own it. I, um, I, I love, I mean, he's Brilliant with words, I think. And uh, he's got some funny one-liners we're going to talk about. But even the subtitle is pretty good. Why so many Why so many managers bucked the trend that was supposed to be their friend? You know, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's good. But we, um, so we agree with some of that. Uh, some of that we um, are a little bit more um, uh, in disagreement with. Um, so... Um, do you want to take a stab, first stab, in terms of what you took away from it? Well, the great part about the, uh, Cliff's writing is is that it's it's very direct, it's very clear, and sometimes you'll sort of say, "Gee, I wish I wrote that myself." So uh, now, as trend followers, I think that we would sort of say that for the most part, there uh, there is nothing new here, but at the same time, it hones in on some of the key issues of what defines trend following, what makes us different, and what are the problems associated with the strategy. And he starts out with a straw man, or I call it a straw man, of, of that there's a dual mandate that most people from managed futures say that they'll try to uh, reach is a sort of high average returns so that we're going to make money for you but we're going to have strong returns in lower equity markets. So, so uh, And he said, like, well, this dual mandate it's really hard to achieve. And I think for those who have been listening to the trend following podcasts and follow this, this is, is that you'd sort of say, this is a straw man because I don't think that, you know, CT, uh, trend followers themselves try to think of themselves as reaching high average returns in strong equity markets in downturns. And so uh, he doesn't use the words, but we'll, we'll sort of say that he, basically embraces the idea that trend following is a divergent strategy. It will do well when markets dislocate or have mar large moves. And if there aren't large moves, you won't make money. So you need that volatility, you need dispersion in prices in order to uh, make returns. And because of this dual mandate objective, Many of the other large CTA managers that are part of the SOCGEN trend following index or other indices that have been structured have generally sort of taken the view is, is that we've got to do other things beyond trend following in order to make money. We've got to sort of mix and match strategies in order to uh, generate that high average return. And unfortunately, is, is that when you mix and match strategies, you might be able to get your average return higher, but that doesn't mean that you're going to then have the better returns when there are large dislocations in, in equity markets. So, so consequently, there is a trade-off between the two, is that a pure trend follower will uh, may have uh, higher returns during a uh, large dislocation, 
but if there are no dislocations, their returns are going to be lower. On the other hand, if you try to increase your average returns, you will then give up some of that positive convexity or that convexity that you want when markets diverge. So, and he actually shows that when you look at uh, you know a, a well-known index, the trend index from Sockgen, uh, that it actually has a strong carry component. That most of uh, that many of the managers, when they they're bundled together in this index, and you look at, they're not pure trend followers. They actually have other things going on. And when you think about carry, carry is going to generate higher returns if there's more stable environment. So what you do is you take trend following that has high you know convexity will do well during market extremes but it doesn't do well if the markets are stable. And what you do is you mix that with carry, carry which does well if there's stable markets and does poor if there are market extremes. You bundle those together to try to reach this dual mandate. And in fact, what what, what it means is, is that when you mix and match strategies, you may not get exactly what you want. So if another way to view this article is, is, is that you should, as investors, always know what you are buying. That if you don't know this, uh, exactly what the strategy that the manager is in undertaking, you may be disappointed when mar- you have a market extreme. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's uh, unpack some of that. So, first of all, let me just ask you this question. It's just something I thought of when I was listening to you um, referencing the uh, these arguments. Now. Could the performance of the SockGen trend index, which, as you say, it seems to suggest there's something else going on other than trend following, but could that profile actually be due to just the fact that you are looking at an index of different managers, different systems, so you're getting some some mixing of more mixing of timeframes, of markets, of risk management methodologies uh, and obviously correlations etc uh, etc et could that could that explain it uh, or is it as cliff suggests uh, really something um, more devious namely um, carry uh, there's there's a little bit of both going on and and I was to say since, since I've played with this data fairly uh, extensively is that I know that when I take a bundle of managed futures managers that some of them are going to cancel out some of the you know positive convexity that I might have and when you think about it is is, is that uh, let's say I have two trend followers and I put them together in an index. One is a long-term trend follower and the other one's a short-term trend follower. Now, it's possible that I could have, I could be long number of markets with my long-term trend and the short-term manager could be short. So uh, when I bundle those return patterns together, I could be sort of neutral. So consequently, I'm going to have a more muted return versus let's say if I'm a longer term trend follower my returns by by, by myself so at times that uh, those muted returns will look better you know on on average but at market extremes it may show that I actually would outperform so uh, so when you uh, so it's okay to compare yourself against a benchmark index 
But at the same time, usually if you're making an investment decision, it's going to be about how do I compare versus manager X or manager Y or a combination or two or three as opposed to a general index. So so trying to make comparisons against a broad index, if let's say you're not going to buy a, bo- uh, a broad portfolio of trend followers, is not the right approach to look at. Yeah. So so um, so again, just giving a little bit of context um, from from my perspective here, I think w- w- one of the key, uh, the, w- w- which I think is important for people to understand, is that I think that it's fair to say. And by the way, uh, we would love, obviously, uh, if, ever, if if anyone has Cliff's ear and and he wants to come on to the podcast and talk about these things, we would obviously love to uh, to have him on. So. Uh, um, it's always a little bit of uh, it feels a little bit funny when you discuss someone's work and and they're not part of this discussion. But anyways, we have to do it, of course. But we did say that we liked the paper to begin with. No, 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 so, absolutely. So. <laughs> but we may not. That's true, and 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 for sure. Um, but still, there's certain things that we're going to be um, you know pushing back on. I think a little bit. But but anyway, so a couple of things. So I think the context of this that you so eloquently explained is that. You could be doing the absolute right thing as a pure trend follower, but you get punished, for example, during the period of 2015 to 2020, pretty much, that five-year period, pure trend was flat. Let's call it that. And so a lot of pure trend managers, uh, I think it's fair to say, including AQR, uh, lost a lot of their AUM. And I think what Cliff is saying is that it feels a little bit unfair that you're doing exactly what you're being paid to do, yet you're being punished. We'll maybe we'll come to that in a second. Right. Now, that is a good good point because there's the manage futures as a strategy and manage futures as a business. Mm-hmm. And how I run my business may be different than how I run, I would like to run my strategy. So strategies manage futures by definition, is, is is that you're going to do poorly during you know, calm times, and most times are, are calm relative to large divergences. And so, so consequently, is is that you know during those those calm times, you're actually going to lose assets. People are going to pull money out because they're saying, well, you know, first, you know, you, you could almost call it the Minsky moment. Is is that you know I expect that calm times will last forever, and because of that, people over leverage, and and you know, then they create the conditions for a big dislocation later on. So, so you pull your money out of managed futures during the calm times. Then all of a sudden, this is that the markets dislocate, and I say, oh my God, I wish I had trend following, and then. Uh, and then you put your money back in, and then of course you go down to the next uh, potential drawdown after the crisis occurs. I will note is is and I think we had this discussion is is that uh, a lot has to do with when you need money, and I have found is uh, from trend following experiences is that we'd make a lot of money because there would be some kind of crisis or dislocation, and then money uh, people would pull money from our fund. Because we were the one place that made money, we were very liquid because we were trading liquid futures markets, and they couldn't pull their money out of illiquid investments, so they took money from your trend following because it generated excess returns and it was a liquid investment, and so they'd take the money out of the fund at that time. So generally, the point is is that as a running a business, you're going to see these 
large fluctuations in AUM. And so consequently, you're, con- you're thinking about what can I do to ensure that I could smooth out my AUM. Uh, and that may, uh, may not always be in the best interest of the clients. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a couple of other things I wanted to uh, um, talk about from that initial part of the uh, article. And that is, of course, let's deal with the dual mandate that he brings up very early on. I mean, it is interesting because, of course, I hear the argument um, from many sides. And um, I've always been, well, initially, uh, I have to admit, I was uh, thrilled when the you know the term uh, crisis alpha came along because I thought, great, now we have something that people can kind of understand and latch on to and it's easy to explain explain even in an investment committee and, and, and it's all wonderful. But of course, I realized um, you know later that actually now then we have to discuss what is a crisis and, and so on and so forth. So I'm not a huge fan of that um, anymore. Uh, because I think it's a little bit more nuanced than than that, and and it refers to what what uh, Cliff is talking about this dual mandate. Uh, the second part being that we um, are there to design to make money when equities go down, and and all I would say is I've never really come across any tr- long term trend follower that has put anything specific in their code, uh, and I can certainly say that for 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 what we do at Done is there's nothing in our code. That, that says that we have to be specific, specifically trying to make money when equities go down. And frankly, we tend to lose a lot of money in equities when these things happen because it's other sectors that makes the money uh, from it. But it's not by, by design and it doesn't have to happen. It's not a guarantee that's going to happen uh, every time. But then, of course, people will come to, to me and say, well, why are you saying that it's not crisis alpha and why are you saying it's not meant to make money um, when equities go down, because look at the last five major crises we look at, done made money every time. And it that is true, but it's important just to separate what we design it to do and what we have delivered. Those two things are, are, are different. So that's kind of one thing just about the dual mandate where I'm not so, I don't feel as strong as Cliff does uh, on that part. Right. Um, but the other thing that's interesting before you, because otherwise I want to lose my train of thought here, <laughs> Mark, uh, getting older here, so I, I'm, I don't, my, my attention span seems to be shrinking. But anyways, it's this thing about, uh, and, and I love the way he phrased it, where he talks about trend followers getting carried away. And we, of course, all know what that means. Um, because in our other discussions on the podcast, we uh, actually talk uh, about that, at least Jerry's suspicion has been that, the we the reason why some of the, these larger managers have uh, done better at times compared with uh, you know pure trend managers etc cetera, etc cetera, it's all this quote unquote vol management um, again I don't actually like that word either um, because I don't think it's necessarily that but it's dynamic position sizing which I think um, after my conversation with Jerry yesterday we we can now agree or agree on that 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 might be a better term for it but in any event what I found interesting was that. Cliff was of, of the opinion that it's probably carry strategies more so than things like dynamic position sizing and so on and so forth, which um, maybe the old style classic trend followers don't don't use. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. I would I would suspect it's a bit of both, uh, frankly. But I don't know. He may they may have done some research that clearly indicates um, that it looks like it's carry type strategies that. Um, that's doing the work. So those were some of the things that that I um, picked up on that initial part of the of the article. 
That's a good point because uh, carry could mask other things going on, like dynamic position sizing. So, uh, and while while I was listening to you, I almost think if there's there's a, there's three schools of managed futures. There's old school, new school, and no school. <laughs> and old school would sort of say. I take my trends and I allow for variable volatility because I position size, uh, you know, uh, according to my exposure yeah. to markets. And if volatility goes up, but I'm trading a certain amount of uh, percentage in oil or in in some markets, is is that I'm just going to take on the ad- added volatility. So we'll call that old school. Uh, so non-position, uh, non-volatility position sizing. A new school would probably sort of say, no, I want to try to target volatility. So I want to sort of say that because when I go to you know clients, I'm going to say, well, I'm a 10 vol type of manager. So and and to do that, I'm going to have to manage or target volatility because I can't then say I'm a 10 vol and then all of a sudden this is that you know I'm I'm having a crisis, volatility is going up, and now I'm showing 20 vol in, over a short-term horizon. So I got to manage that. And by managing that, then I'm going to have to become more mean reverting. And by definition, a mean reverting strategy is going to be more carry-like. The third, we'll call it the no school, which it says is that I'll have some trend following, I'll do some other stuff, and and it's just to try to sort of how to, how to sort of goose up my average returns. So so we'll sort of say that the old school trend followers, there are still some left. They've sort of suffered from the you know, additions and uh, uh, redemption problems the most. So, but they still exist. So they're usually probably not very quote unquote corporate. They're run by probably individuals because those individuals can be more iconoclastic and they're willing to say, I believe in trend following as this pure strategy. And consequently, I'll take, uh, I'll take this swings in AUM. So I'm willing to do that. A large corporation asset management company would not like that. Then you have, we'll sort of say, the new school, which uh, we would sort of say, or the, the people say, look, I'm trying to build a business. I, I have large assets under management. What do I have to do to sort of be able to appease institutional investors? And that means I've got a sort of vol target to some degree. And then the no school will sort of say like, well, I trade futures, I'm quantitative, and it's going to be a combination of whatever I think works. Now, that doesn't mean that that's bad, it just means it's going to be different than the old school managers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, the other thing that comes through in this article, which I and by the way, I have a lot of sympathy what uh, for what uh, Cliff is 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 talking about, um, because also in in my job uh, in the last uh, couple of years prior to say twenty twenty late twenty twenty one, this whole point about having to defend your returns versus the SOCGEN trend index came up quite a lot. Um, and it's almost like if you don't, if you don't are in line with the trend index, which we're not part of, by the way, so why would we be in line with it? You know, uh, on a monthly basis, then you had to kind of explain that. And I think what, what, um, what this article helps uh, do is really to frame that um, and uh, give examples as to, why there are these differences. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that I really like about the article is that 
Uh, Cliff writes about uh, something where he says, bad times happen to good strategies. Uh, and even if you have 100 years worth of evidence, you still may be tempted to make changes when performance levels off for a few years. And of course, in his view, that's a fraught um, uh, view, um, which I completely agree with. And that's another thing that um, that I personally have had to to deal with is this thing about uh, if 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 you're underperformed for a year or two, even by a little, people would expect. Well, you have to go and change the model, and um, and that's just something when we then would push back and say, well, actually, we we don't think there's anything wrong with the model. So it is a, these are real life problems or pr- very practical level problems that we face as managers. And so I, I really uh, applaud him for for bringing these uh, points up because it um, it will certainly help me <laughs> to have a, to have something to reference as well when uh, when these things uh, come up um, because at the end of the day when you look at these things you probably shouldn't do it more often than on a rolling ten year period meaning you can't really compare a manager versus an index on a month by month or even year by year. Uh, basis it it doesn't really make a lot of sense in 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 my view so you have to have a much um, bigger um, time horizon and then finally and I'd love to hear your thoughts there's something about potential improvements you can talk about that if you want to um, that he's identifying but also his expectation for trend following strategies uh, versus some of those strategies that, that did well in the low ultra low interest rate environment such as private equity um, which of course a lot of institutions love and had loaded up on private equity um, in in recent years and and of course what he's arguing is that well and and I kind of agree with that that anything that seems to have worked well in this artificially uh, held uh, interest rate environment that the central banks uh, had for a decade or so well if we're if we're leaving that environment well you you would expect that it's going to be the opposite uh, that's going to do well things like divergent strategies as trend following. So that those were some of my final takeaways. Right. Now, the private equity issue is is something worth a longer discussion at some point because uh, you can think about it, you're on a spectrum. Managed futures is the ultra-liquid strategy in the, and the ultra-volatility strategy because you can be mark-to-market not only from uh, day-to-day, you could be mark-to-market from minute-to-minute, you know, in the futures markets. And private equity, by definition, is is, is that... Because you get your marks usually once a year, you know, uh, when when, the, when they do an audit, is 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 that you really don't uh, don't know what you're getting until you know the end horizon when you know, some of the, some of the equities is sold uh, sold off, and so what happens is this is that you could sort of say, you know, I. And I've had these discussions where people say, well, I like private equity because I know it's less volatile. It may not be less volatile. It's just that, that we don't report the volatility. And that's a, that's a, that's a big difference. So uh, the, the other issue I think is, is, is that uh, there is not a good benchmark for managed futures other than pure benchmarks. You know, so we, we take a bundle of other managers and put them together and, and I think that that's always a problematic when, uh, no, no. I, I think that, for example, if you're long S&P, if you're trying to, if you're a large cap manager, then you can sort of talk about, my God, I can be long against the benchmark of the S&P uh, index. Peer, peer benchmarks are always difficult to, to, to look at. And, and I think he, he makes a good point on that. 
the final issue is I think that he goes, well, where is there innovation in trend following? And I don't think he focuses on the innovation of, uh, we'll call it volatility targeting. But he, he said that two major innovations in trend following is one, uh, you know, we'll call it the innovation of alternative trends. So looking at trends in, let's say, less liquid markets. Uh, and you could think of this as uh, as a variation on what we've often talked about, where if you increase the breadth of markets, if you trade more markets, then you could potentially get these divergent opportunities. He doesn't use that language, and he doesn't talk about it in those terms, but by, by looking at less liquid futures markets, forward markets, cash markets, or less uh, that you can create or uh, more diversification and more uh, diversity to allow to pick up more trends. And the second issue that uh, that you know, is most intriguing is is that he talks about that uh, uh, the other innovation is macro trends using macro trends in conjunction with price trends. Which, in, in some senses, you're saying that a closet global macro trader. So, where you say, now, I'm a firm believer that you sort of say that oftentimes that if you want to look at where price trends are occurring, look to what's happening to the fundamentals. Look what's happening in the macro trends. But I will sort of say that that macro trends don't always convert to price trends. Or uh, so, so that you could have a macro trend, yet that doesn't mean that we're going to sort of see that displayed in prices over shorter term horizons. And the perfect example would be, look, look at the inflation in Europe, look at the inflation in the United States. And then, you know, if you sort of said, I always like to do the macro thought experiment. If I told you that inflation was going to be in Great Britain, it just popped up to 10%. And then say, tell me what you think the long bond would be or what interest rates should be in Great Britain given the 10% inflation. You know, you probably sort of say, like, well, I expect that it, you know, interest rates are going to be close to 10%, especially on a short rate. And if I told you that it's uh it's more like two and a half percent. Uh, you know, you, you'd sort of say, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm crazy. So, so what you could sort of say, macro trends don't often translate to price trends. So those are not the same things. But I think that Cliff is talking about that, or the next innovation in trend following would be, would be to look to macro trends. I'd say it's interesting, but I don't know if that's the direction that most trend followers are going to go. No. But the um, the beauty is that we're all going to have our own um, research agendas, and we're all going to try and and innovate. Uh, I think Chris uh, Clifford's point is is well taken in terms of, and as you put it, just make sure you know what's inside the box, so to speak, um, so you have a a fair expectation in terms of uh, how it's going to uh, behave. Um, and frankly, you know, for those who want to include other things, you know, that's perfectly fine. And it gives a different profile. And if some investors prefer that profile, that that those are the, those are the managers they should go with. Um, but if they want what we've always been able to deliver uh, as pure trend followers, then there are fewer pure trend followers around today um, for all the reasons that Cliff's right about. 
uh, frankly, um, and for the reasons we talk about uh, on on the podcast. But it is still, as as I put it, one of the overlooked but incredibly robust strategies over many decades of different market regimes. I want to leave uh, Cliff's article for now because you brought along some other points and uh, I want to get to uh, at least some of them. There are eight of them, so I want you maybe to choose which one you want to uh, dive into first. Uh, I'm perfectly uh, happy to go along. We have something about uh, an article that um, I think I discussed it a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago from the FT on trend following. Yeah, that was from uh, Nick yeah, Exactly, yeah. So, do you want to add something to that? Well, the interesting part is, is that, uh, and I think the overall gist of the article was, is, is that higher inflation is good for trend followers. And, uh, and so he broke it down into, you know, if there is a... Uh, Inflation above 2.5%, no surprises, versus below 2.5% with surprises. So so it's surprise or no surprise, but then this uh, 2.5% number. And he said that when inflation gets above 2.5% and there's really no surprises, which means there's less volatility in inflation, is that that's when trend followers do best. And I think that that is true. But it's uh, but the causal relationship may not be as direct. So inflation is higher actually means this is that there's probably going to be uh, expected inflation is higher, which means bonds are going to trend. You're going to probably have a differential in inflation in currencies. So if because of purchasing power parity, you're going to have differences in currency rates. So you're going to have opportunities in that area. It, in uh, higher inflation leads to mispricing in equity. So you're going to have opportunities in that area. You're usually going to be associated with uh, energy sh- uh, shocks. So you're going to have opportunities in that area. And so so I think that, that higher inflation leads to more opportunities, leads to more divergence. But additionally, is, is that, and this is when we come back to what we originally talked about, is, is that inflation, when you have higher inflation, you're going to have more surprises uh, about what prices mean. There's, so there's more uncertainty about what is what the price mechanism is telling you. So consequently, that's going to all cause a slowing of decision making, and the slowing of decision making creates trends. So, uh, and I, and I think that that's 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 sort of what we always want to get back to is is, is the fact that that. It's not the inflation itself, it's the uncertainty about inflation and what that means on pricing that's, that drives trends. Yeah, and I guess also um, maybe something, um, maybe on a more technical level, I don't know, we say often that what we really want is divergence. That's what trend, in that environment, trend following does really well. And I guess that also means that uh, in a divergent environment, uh, correlations generally tend to come down. And I wonder if then the effect of at least people who uh, take correlation into account, but maybe also other managers, it actually allows us to have a little bit more risk on without it being more risky, so to speak. And that's also part of why uh, performance numbers tend to be quite healthy uh, during these more uh, divergent environments, as we've seen this year, I would say. 
Well, th- that's actually a much more complex issue, and probably we're going to spend the rest of Maybe our time on Maybe I shouldn't have opened that Pandora this, box. So, well, the issue is that, that sometimes when you have a, uh, well, we always talk about divergence, and so we want to have, you know, because that creates dislocations, which causes trends. So uh, we say that you're moving from a stable equilibrium to a new equilibrium. Now, it could be because it could be from a single shock, and a single shock could then actually cause correlations to increase. So, so for example, is, is that you'd say a lot of the, you know, uh, a significant portion of some of the movement we've seen in markets is associated with the oil price shock. And so when you have, uh, you know, a single shock that causes a dislocation, it may be manifested across many markets. And... Uh, I probably will make my most money when I have a single shock that's that actually is moving across many markets at the same time. And so it sort of says, I love, you know, uh, uh, diversification, but if I want to make big money, I love those single shocks where they're, everything is moving moving together. Yeah, no, it's true. I so, mean, we, we tend to make most money when our portfolios are somewhat concentrated, although this year feels a little bit different. I know in the beginning of the year, you could certainly say that there was a one theme that drove uh, most of the performance. Um, but, you know, in recent months, uh, and I know July wasn't a great month, but August is looking good, and, and, and some of the other uh, Q2 months were pretty good. Divergence became more uh, um, evident in the markets. You know, not all commodities were going up anymore, right? And in fact, many of them were going down and some of them were still going up. So, but anyway, um, maybe we need to dive into that uh, at a later date. I want to talk about, you have a point and which I wasn't sure what you meant by um, turning points kill the real issue beyond inflation. Right. Um, what's going on with that? Well, you know, I went back to... Uh, to some older research, and it was done by Campbell Harvey, and it was called uh, 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 "Breaking Bad Trends." And so it's done well, and uh, because I went, went back and I said, and basically what it says is that the more turning points you have or reversals you have, impacts what your overall return would be as a trend follower. And so, in so that you know, if you look for a given asset, uh, asset, if if you have four major turning points. You know that that's the 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 point where if you have less than four, you're going to make money and have good sharp ratio. If you're more than four, you're probably going to start to lose money. There's a number of ways to measure it. You know, uh, so I, so I went back over you know and used let's say a uh, you know eighty day, hundred day moving average versus a twenty day moving average and looked at uh, some of the major asset classes and said, well, how many turning points have I had so far this year? And you look at the numbers, is that the reason why this is a great year is, is that we haven't had a lot of turning points. This is that you say have bonds, or maybe have been one. If you look at, uh, you know, currencies, the dollar index, you know, one. Oil, maybe two. Uh, equities have been three to four, so it's, it's more cuspy in terms of whether you're making money. And so... When we often talk about divergence, you know, we all, uh, the reason why I use that term as opposed to, you know, long volatility or high volatility, because if you have higher volatility, you could have more turning points in your in your in your trends. So you want to have divergences, but what you you want these divergences just to last, and you don't want, yeah, and you actually then want lower volatility 
because you don't want to sort of you know have to flip your portfolio. And I sort of half joke, but I think this is really meaningful for all of the listeners, and I think for all managers, is that I make the most money when I work the least. So so if I if I'm not trading at all, I know I'm making money. If I'm trading and I'm busy trading, then that means I'm probably losing money. And so I I tell this to clients, and they would sort of they would sort of be somewhat perplexed and laugh at me. Say so say like say like look, if you call me up and you say how are you doing, and I said I'm bored, I haven't done anything at all. They say that means I'm making money. If they call you, if uh, if they call me up and say like. I can't talk. I'm real busy. It's got a lot, a lot going on here. Can't, you know, I got to make this conversation short. That means I'm trading. I'm probably losing money. So, so you want to be a, a good trend follower is is a lazy man strategy because if I'm not doing anything, this is that I'm usually doing pretty well. And if I stop, if I have to start working, <laughs> then I got a problem. Yeah, no, it's actually a great uh, it's a great way of describing it because it's so true um, for sure, and, and people can look at it. We have this wonderful but weird way of um, looking at how our turnover in in uh, in, in managed futures, and that's called um, round turns per million dollars. And so it, it shows you how many times we bought and sold a contract per one million dollar we've we manage. And you're absolutely right; there are some years. Um, where that number is significantly higher than than the average, and that's usually the bad years. Um, and so uh, it's it's very true. Now I want to jump to the next uh, point because these headlines that you gave me uh, are very interesting. So I want to find out what it means. Um, decision making with Colin Powell and uh, and Jeff Bezos seventy percent rule. What what's going on here? Well, yeah. Anyone who follows my my blog is this is that I spend a lot of time thinking about decisions because ultimately is this is that when you think about trend following it's just a form of decision making it's a heuristic you say 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 my rule of thumb is is that prices go up I'm a buyer and, and so in a complex world this is that I keep my decision making simple and so I was reading about Colin Paul and 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 sort of similarly Jeff Bezos. They both came with this sort of same conclusion. They said, like, well, you know, they asked him, well, how do you make a decision? When do you make it? And he says, so you call everyone into the room and you start asking questions. And and he said, like, look, if you feel as though that you have less than forty percent of what you think you need to know to uh, you know to have complete understanding, this is that don't make it a decision. But if you feel like you got about 70% of what, you know, is perfect information, then make the decision. Don't delay. And when you think about the, this from a trend following perspective, is this is that that a trend follower is never going, uh, by definition, says, I'm never going to know all the information so about what's happening for, let's say, the energy market. I'm never going to know the nuances of what's happening geopolitically. I don't know exactly what the flow of, of, of oil across from the Middle East. I don't know what production might look like in, in, in the United States. So at the end of the day, as I say, like my 70% rule is say like, eh, if prices are going up, you know, that's telling me something. I probably should follow that trend. And so, so the important point is to say, I, a trend follower in general, you say like, 
I'm never going to have perfect information. So I use what I have and whatever that rule is, say that if I've got enough information to sort of say that, or I have enough to say to say, I think this is the direction, then take action. And, uh, and I think that this is the difference between a discretionary and a trend follower. A discretionary trader is going to say, I'm always sort of saying, I'm searching for and I'm trying to achieve perfect knowledge. That won't happen. The trend follower said, I'm an imperfect decision maker. I have imperfect information. I will make my decision and decide based on imperfect information that's less than 100%. Yeah. No, no, it's brilliant. Now we move on to hedgehogs versus foxes, strategy hedgehog and execution fox. <laughs> tell tell us more. Well, the one thing that I, you know, uh, you know, I followed the philosopher uh, Isaiah Berlin and so uh and he's actually you know uses the old fable to describe uh you know different philosophers and it's been picked up by uh uh you know, uh, Phil Telleck, you know, in, in expert decision making and says that there's actually two types of, you know, uh, experts that you have. There are hedgehogs or foxes. And the hedgehog knows one thing very well. Okay. And that way that could serve him well in making decisions. But if let's say that there's some new information that comes out that's different from what his area of expertise is, he's he's gonna he's gonna have some trouble. And the and the fox actually is knows a lot of uh, a lot of little things, but may not know one thing very well. And when you think about uh, different types of managers, this is, is that. Uh, uh, a trend follower should be a hedgehog in the sense that we're going to sort of be completely focused in on prices. But then we also have to be a fox and the fox and we have to know a lot of little things about, you know, uh, implementation. And so we'll, we'll sort of say execution. So, uh, so, so it's a combination of both strategies. Now, on the other hand, we'll sort of say that, uh, uh, a global macro person might be more of a fox because he might sort of say that I'm sort of focusing on all the disparate information. Uh, a value manager is more like it might be a hedgehog. So you could think of different strategies in the managers you visit as as either a hedgehog or a fox. And so so it's a nice way to sort of think about how or, or frame how a manager sort of thinks about their strategy and what they do to make money. Yeah. And last week um, we talked about uh, this article by Morgan Housel where we managed to tie in um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs into uh, trend following. So I think we're doing pretty well with the foxes and the hedgehogs uh, this week. So we got Snow White, we got a hedgehog, <laughs> carrying a hedgehog. We've got the dwarfs <laughs> looking for foxes. So, so yeah, who knows what analogy we'll have next. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, then you go on and you uh, mentioned the drought in markets, the top of the book liquidity um that's a little bit more serious, perhaps, than Snow White. No, it it is a serious topic, only because you know when you start talking about droughts and the shortage of liquidity and how that actually impacts you know uh, how the economy works. One thing that is a worry uh, 
is the fact that there has been a significant decline in, uh, you know, top of the book liquidity. So you can look at the CME liquidity tool and it, it tells you exactly the amount of liquidity that you have at the top of the book and then how much that you, you, you have, how much depth you have in the book. And we'll probably sort of say that, you know, the, 10-year liquidity for bonds is probably maybe one-tenth of what, what it was at the beginning of the year. Long bond is about half the liquidity. Um, energy, it's probably, we're, we're at about, uh, you know, more than 60% down. Um, we'll sort of say soybeans, um, you know, we'll sort of say that uh, it's another 40% down. So, uh, so e-minis, it, it might be, you know, more than 60% down. And so, uh, that really does have an effect from a trading perspective. And we'll sort of say that, uh, we've had sort of, you know, run of different schools or trend following. So, so trend following initially was very long-term. And part of the reason was, is, is that, uh, transactions cost of trading were very high. And so you couldn't be a high frequency trader when you had round turns per, uh, that uh, were maybe 75 to hundred dollars, you know? So, so as costs came down, people became, you got shorter term trending. I think that there's going to be a resurgence of longer term trend following, because if there's less liquidity, you want to have strategies that trade less because the cost of trading is much greater. Uh, so if you look at uh, you know the you know CME liquidity tool, it sort of said like, well, you can actually put in if I want to trade a one lot, what's the uh, what's the cost? I say like, okay, that's it, probably probably one tick. Then you sort of say, if I want to do a hundred lot, what's that going to cost? 100 cost uh you know 100 lot might cost you four to five ticks so so that starts to become fairly expensive because when you think about you know uh uh you know a hundred lot you know for bonds that's uh that's only 10 million dollars if you're running a, a, a you know multi-billion dollar you know cta those costs add up really are pretty significant. So execution makes a huge difference on performance. And so I would sort of say that uh, for listeners who are small individual traders, this may not be as big a cost from your perspective, but it does have an impact because when large traders come in, they're going to start to cause more dislocations in prices. You're going to get more choppiness, and that's going to affect how you make your decisions intraday. So liquidity is going to be, just as there's a shortage of water and liquidity in the Rhine, there's a shortage of liquidity in markets. Nice tie tie together, those two things. Well done. Now, we've got three topics left. Um, maybe we have time for a, a short comment on each of them. Um, the difference between momentum and trend following, what spurred you to write about that? Well, the, you know, when, when I uh, was, it wasn't associated with, uh, you know, Cliff, but Cliff is, did a good job of going back to basics. So you think about know your strategy. And I was having another discussion where he said like, well, you know, uh, you know, momentum hasn't done well this year. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, is it, you know, yeah, you trend followers. And so, so I, you, you'll hear people sometimes, you know, sort of, you know, 
move back between momentum and trend back and forth between is is that there's there's using the same language. And I think it's important that we make a distinction between, uh, you know, uh, trend following that's a dynamic beta that takes beta risk, that's an absolute return strategy, and momentum, which is generally a long, short strategy that attempts to be market neutral. So you can have situations where trend followers make have uh, make money, have a very, very good year, and momentum traders actually sort of are flat and do nothing at all. So it's important for uh, investors to make sure that they understand and appreciate the difference between trend and momentum. Yeah, no, absolutely. Then you have entrepreneurs of arrows of errors and why quant over listing to uh, all over listening to analysts. Sorry for butchering that right. one. Well, this is a, this is a, so, um, there was an interesting paper a few years ago by Ed Glazer from Harvard University. He was talking about the housing bubble. And he he turned this interesting phrase called the entrepreneurs of errors. And he said that that the reason why the sort of like the housing market continued to, to move higher, even though it was somewhat overvalued in, in a pre-great financial crisis, is because there actually were people that were entrepreneurs that sort of wanted the bubble to continue, that their money was made from continuation of, of existing behavior. And so, so that they were entrepreneurs of, of, of maintaining a bias or an error. And the same thing can be said for markets today is, is, is that when you think about all of the large asset management companies who have large exposure of equities, is it they'll say, well, this is going to be a short-lived bear market. You know, don't worry it's a, that we're going to bounce back quickly. Well, part of it is, is, is that their business is based on the fact that you keep your money invested because uh, in equity funds, if you move your money from equity funds to, let's say, cash, you know, the fees that you generate from a cash uh, money market fund are going to be much lower than if you have it in the equity fund or even a fixed income fund. And so it's really important, I think, to do your own research, to track prices on your own, because the entrepreneurs of errors will want to sort of move you in their direction that's in their best interest that may not be in your best interest. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, final topic uh, that you wanted to uh, talk about uh, is uh, headed supply, command, and end user of commodities. Where are we heading with that? Well, the, the one thing that, that I was uh, looking at is, is, is that when I try to look at the commodity market in, uh, today, is, is, is that there's the supply issue, okay? Um, then there's the command issues, who controls the commodity, and then the end user issue is is, is that you know does the end user have an uh, you know what what's the cost of them actually buying them and so uh, and and one of the problems we've had where we've seen that oil prices have gone up they've come down commodities you know spiked early in the spring and then they came back down and people are scratching their head and say well what's really going on here and. I think that you always have to sort of sort of separate this into uh, 
we'll, we'll call it three different groups. What's happening on the supply side, which may be different than what's happening to, uh, to the actual distribution or the logistics of commodities. Then who commands that commodity? It could be OPEC. It could be the fact that there's a war that they're commanding the marginal bushel of grain that's coming out of the Black Sea. And then the end user who may not have command because, you know, if let's say that there's higher inflation, you know, they, they have less income available to be able to buy the, uh, the commodity. And so it's always good to sort of say when you're sort of seeing that uh, news reports and then you look at what's happening on the price action and say, well, why is there a difference between what I'm seeing between the two? It's good to sort of break it down into those three different components. And so I'm not sort of suggesting everybody should become fundamentalists, but it's important, I think, that that when you sort of see what's happening on trends is that you go back and try to say is, is that are is there that that if you see a trend, sometimes the reaction and it doesn't seem to um, mesh with news stories. People say, "Well, prices are irrational." So, my thought is always is that if prices are trending in one direction and the news stories are telling me something different, then my bias is is that, that there's something wrong with the news story. I, I'm missing something that's going on in the fundamentals uh, that I haven't caught, or there's a misemphasis on what's going on in the fundamentals that, that in general, prices are always right. Now the question comes in is what's, uh, what are the causes as opposed to assuming that the, the story is right and the prices are wrong? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. We, that's just the whole point why we are so committed to uh, focusing on price um, uh, predominantly, if not exclusively for most trend followers. Um, very cool, Mark. Really appreciate that. Um, and uh, if uh, let me wrap up by saying that if you enjoy these uh, type of insights and conversations, um, perhaps you could do us a favor uh, if you're listening to this, and that is to uh, uh, share uh, a link, uh, toptradersonplug.com forward slash share. If you send that to three of your like-minded friends or family members, could be even colleagues that likes to hear these kind of insights uh, from people like Mark, um, we would so appreciate um, if you would help spread the word. Next week, I'm joined by Jerry, so I'm sure we'll be tackling um, maybe some of these issues again, but from a different angle, um, plus some more uh, hardcore trend-following topics. Um, do send your questions in uh, as early as possible. So we have a chance to uh, line them up in the right order and and have a chance to uh, give you some answers uh, next week. Also, by the way, um, the latest trend-following performance report has been updated to the website, so you should go and check that out. I think we published that uh, only a couple of days ago. That's it for this week from Mark and me. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.